0: If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to the Gospel of John, right there in the middle of John's Gospel, crammed between, well, two of the more famous stories in Jesus' life. You have the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11, and then you have Jesus' triumphal entry in John chapter 12. Right in the middle between those two, we have a less known but very important story. We could call it the accidental prophecy of Caiaphas. It's a little story full of irony and full of rich theology. Even though it's just a quick narrative, it's just loaded with theology about the cross. And so it's a very applicable time in God's word, placing God's word for us um, as we come together for the Lord's Supper. John chapter 11 I'll start reading in verse 47. We'll pick up in the middle of the story, and then I'll explain some context a little bit after we read it. Verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, referring to Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, John tells us, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. While four Ps might help us remember the headlines of this passage, things that we should pull out of this passage, the first P is problem that Jesus apparently is becoming a real problem for religious leaders by the time of John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, earlier, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And many are believing in him. You see that in verse 45. Many are believing in him. Too many for the likes of the religious leaders. They're getting nervous with this following. They're concerned that more and more will keep believing, especially after this amazing miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. I mean, he's done signs and wonders before that, and they've all been interesting, curious, surprising, neat. But a resurrection is something now totally new. They're concerned that people will keep believing. This will get bigger and bigger. And then they think trouble will come as a result of this big Jesus movement. They think, according to verse 7, That these many signs will lead to many people to believe. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and, what does this mean? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What does Jesus and his miracles and this growing, spreading belief that's going on around Jesus have to do with the Romans and whatever else the rest of that verse says? Well, the Roman government in these days doesn't like new movements. And they don't like new movements in part for good reasons. Too many of these movements have led to major uprisings, sort of war of the peasants, right? The people's wars have you know, come up and come up and come up, and some, most of them have been squashed down. One, you know, 70 years before this or so, it took, uh, it took three and a half years to, to fight and to finally put certain radical Jews um, down and uh, back under the thumb of the Roman government. Now we know from our vantage point of living past the cross, past the resurrection, even past the, the writing of the New Testament, we know that Jesus wasn't a political radical. He isn't interested in leading a Jewish revolt against the Romans. But the Romans of Jesus' time don't know that. They don't know that. In fact, many people, and sometimes even Jesus' disciples wrongly assumed that what he was up to was some sort of political overthrow, right? Some sort of war, some sort of throwing off of the Roman occupation of the Jewish land. Even the disciples sometimes thought, when are we going to go to war? Or Peter pulling out the sword, chopping off the ear of a soldier. He was ready to go. He thought, this is it is what we've been waiting for. No. But the Pharisees in John chapter 11 11 are thinking like that. They're thinking practically and pragmatically. They're thinking something like this. If this Jesus thing gets out of hand, the Romans are going to come and think that it's an uprising like the ones before, and they're going to pin this on the Jews. They're going to think this is a Jewish uprising. Because Jesus is Jewish and, you know, 98% of those who are following him at this point are Jewish. So what could happen is verse 48. Look at those, those two words there. Take away our place and take away our nation. The place is the temple. The Romans could step in and realize this Jewish thing is getting out of control because of this Jesus and all of his growing followers. Take away the place and take away our nation why would they say, take away our nation? Well, uh, in the first century times, this was sort of an odd relationship. There was a Jewish nation within and under a Roman nation. There was a Roman government, and there was kind of a Jewish government underneath it and within it. And that could quickly change, they thought, if the Romans decided one day that that wasn't expedient anymore for them. So it's a complex geopolitical context, uh, one that we're probably not too familiar with, um, even though it's often hinted at through the Jesus story in the New Testament. But it's these strange, complicated, political inner workings of first century uh, Middle East which lead to Jesus' crucifixion. But here's something that's more applicable to us, something we can quickly get our hands around, but you may not have noticed it. Something about the religious leaders in this passage is applicable to any people in any land. Did you notice that the Pharisees here are so caught up in the political jockeying with the Romans, they're not asking the right questions, are they? Here they're concerned about Jesus' miracles, and the effect that's having on their land, and they're only concerned about whether the temple may disappear, whether the Roman government may remove their national status, their government, or maybe even throw them out of their land altogether. But this Jesus is staring them right in the face with all of his signs. They even, they even say he's been doing many signs. It doesn't say in the passage here that they even debate those. It doesn't say in the passage, you know, he just recently did that Lazarus hoax. They seem to acknowledge that he's actually doing signs and wonders. Staring at them right in the face is this Jesus and his power. And all they can think about is the Roman government and their land and, and protecting their temple. What a horrible Irony. In fact, they're even going to go after Lazarus to kill him. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. I just saw this this week. I couldn't, I was surprised I hadn't seen this before and noticed how how this stands out, how this is surprising as you read through it. Verse 10 So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Lazarus? I mean, Lazarus? What did he do? Now you can say, well, you know, we're gonna put this Jesus to death. Here are the charges they pin it, they pin on him later on. He's committed blasphemy. He's equated himself to be God. He's he's said too many godlike things to to, to not get away with this. So so we we need to pursue that. We need to punish him. But Lazarus? See the web that's spinning all around him? See, it's just self protecting. Pragmatic political jockeying, and it's all wrapped up and growing. They're afraid that this thing keeps growing, it's going to lead to some bad political ends, and they're gonna not only seek to take out the leader, but they're actually gonna take out a star witness, Lazarus. I mean, here's a guy going around saying, Jesus rose, uh, raised me from the dead. I was dead. I was there. Here's what it was like. And I heard his voice. And I got up, but but I wasn't dreaming. I actually got up. You know, that that can hurt uh, your plans if you're trying to put this movement uh, away. That's the first P. There's a problem. The second one is that it's predicted. His death, specifically, was predicted in this passage. Verse 49, look at that. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them... You know nothing at all, nor do you understand the plan, the real plan, which we should be pursuing. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. His death is predicted here. Now, really, his death is predicted in many ways, at many times throughout the Gospels. Not just the Gospels, throughout the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 53, you can go back to Genesis 3.15. The crushing of the serpent's head... It's going to bruise, the seeds heal, the sons heal. There's going to be a a sacrifice, there's going to be a a payment in order to defeat that that curse and and Satan. In the Old Testament, it's predicted throughout Jesus' life, his death is hinted at. Jesus himself hinted at his death so many ways, so many times. In John chapter 10, he's just recently said, I lay my life down for the sheep. What's that mean? I don't think that means lay it down on the dirt road so the sheep can walk over and they don't have to get dirty. No, he's talking about the sacrifice to come. In fact, would you look over just to Luke 9. Remember this. Jesus once bluntly and clearly foretold of his death and his resurrection pretty early on. Luke 9, verse 22. He told his disciples... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Very clear. Verse 44, it's repeated. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't get it. They just didn't get it over and over. They didn't get it. No one saw it, but... (laughs) It was promised in the Old Testament. It was hinted at throughout Jesus' life. It was bluntly and clearly foretold in his own teaching. And yet there's also this sort of funny, ironic way that his death is foretold by Caiaphas here in John 11. He predicted it accidentally and providentially. He didn't intend to, but it's what God intended. All Caiaphas means when he says in verse 51... Uh, Sorry, verse 50. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. All he means is that it's better for one guy to die than for thousands to die in a Roman war. Let's put this guy to death, squash the movement, or else the Romans are going to come and we're going to die as a nation and we're going to lose our temple. He didn't know how wrong he was when he said, one man die. So that the nation doesn't perish? Because actually, Jesus did die, and in practicality, the nation still did perish. The temple still did vanish. AD 70, one generation from when Jesus promised it, the temple was destroyed there in Jerusalem. One man died, and Caiaphas' plan, Caiaphas's plan didn't work. He didn't know how wrong he was, but he, in a sense, didn't know how true, how true it was when he said, one man to die for the people. Now again, verse 51, notice that, it says there, he didn't say this of his own accord. And it surely wasn't just coincidence. So it's not just you know, God knows the story, knows that there's this one little thing this guy said. He pulls it out and, you know, we can now read into it. All of this that happened later on. Sort of convenient, um, backwards-working prophecies. No, it's not just coincidence. It was real prophecy. It says that. But it was unintended, accidental prophecy. Isn't our God a God of irony? You see it all over the Bible, don't you? Remember David being confronted by the prophet Nathan? He paints that little picture of a a poor farmer. You know, he's only got a couple sheep. And some guy with a billion sheep comes over and steals his his one sheep. David says, who is the man? You know, he's he's irate. It's unjust. It's ironic. Nathan says, you are the man. Because he's done that with Bathsheba taking taking one wife from a man. You see it all through the Gospels as Jesus' story is unfolded. You see victory through someone being killed, laying his life down. Exaltation through humiliation. Ironic. You see that our peace comes actually through someone's violent murder. You see, glory through shame. It's dripping with irony, isn't it? So That's the second P, that his death was predicted. The third is that his death was purposeful. At the end of verse 51, here's what the high priest Caiaphas prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. His death wasn't just predicted. And then, ha, look, it must be true. He must be God because he predicted something and it came true. His death is more than a trick or a show or a sign. His death is purposeful. And the purpose is substitution. It's so clear in this passage. It's a great substitution passage, isn't it? Where Jesus dies in our place. Listen to some others, maybe close your eyes and picture these words, hopefully familiar words to you, like that in Romans 5, where Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for, in the place of. Keep listening for the substitution themes. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood. His blood is the means by which we're justified, made righteous. Much more, we'll be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Or Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, to buy them out of their slavery. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, not for his sins, for our sins. Christ took our punishment, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Maybe the best, it's wordy, but... It covers a lot of the bases. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Not to do sin, but to bear sin, become sin, to to take the punishment of sin. So that in Him, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. All of these passages describe what We're saved from sin and judgment. And how we're saved, someone else took our place. That gift is received through faith. John 11 is getting at that glorious gospel theme. So back to John 11, we also see a great expansion of God's salvation here. In this passage, look at verse 52. He died for a nation, but not for a nation only. Also for the children of God scattered abroad. This thing's getting global. In one sense, it was promised back in Genesis 12 that God's plan one day would be a blessing to all the nations, not just one nation. But throughout the majority of the Old Testament, ever since Father Abraham God has been working primarily through a nation. He's picked one nation to show his favor to and pour his love out on and extend mercy to and to, and to speak to them and, and to draw them in for worship. And throughout that, you see all kinds of hints that something's going to come and it's going to be great, it's going to be global. You see, in the Psalms... So much of global praise. Sunday, the nations will praise him. The coastlands will praise him. Let all the peoples praise him. And then you see in passages like John 11, it's not just for that nation only, but when he dies, he'll gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Look over at John 12 a little later on. You see in verse 20, the head-scratcher, it's not a head-scratcher to us, but it was for the disciples. It says in verse 20 that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, non-Jews. And these came to Philip, one of the disciples, who's Jewish, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I think literally it doesn't mean see Jesus here, like there he is, okay, now you can go, but we wish to follow him. Philip doesn't know what to do. You see that in verse 22? He walks away, apparently. Uh, Philip went and told Andrew, there's a Greek that wants to follow Jesus. Isn't this a Jewish thing? We're all Jewish. He's Jewish. This Greek wants to follow him. What What do we tell him? Philip doesn't know. Philip walks away. Philip went and told Jesus. And then Jesus answers with a long reply. And I won't give you the whole reply. Just skip down to verse 32 and see what Jesus says that's probably the shortest version of the answer they're asking him about this Greek that wants to follow him. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, referring to the cross, the way they would crucify someone and then lift up the cross and drop it into a hole. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He doesn't mean every individual who's ever lived. He means all kinds of people. Greeks, Irish, Americans, Ethiopians. That's what's meant in Revelation 5, 9, that in the end there'll be a redeemed multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. In Ephesians 2, it encourages us Gentiles, most of us in here are of Gentile descent, not Jewish descent, and Ephesians 2 speaks to us and says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were separated from Christ. Remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth, the family, the the place of blessing. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. For thousands of years, God was primarily working through a nation. In Christ, that scope is broadened to a global level. So Ephesians 2 says that you once had no hope and were without God in the world. What dark words, without God in the world. His world, and yet without Him. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't John 11 also such a great example that we saw on Sunday in Psalm 2? Did you notice that? Remember Psalm 2 said that the nations plot in vain against God and against his anointed. The Lord laughs. He scoffs at them from heaven. What's Caiaphas doing? Plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. And it's actually God's plan. It's actually just what God wanted all along. So we read from Acts 4 on Sunday, which is similar. We're there, they pray, the disciples pray, and they quote from Psalm 2 why did the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why did the kings set themselves against the Lord? And against his anointed. And then they pray. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with Gentiles and the people of Israel. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Oh they did it freely. Of the sin of their own heart they did it freely. And yet it's exactly what God had planned all along his death is purposeful and then lastly another p is that his death is powerful it's powerful kind of already seen that and that there's power to save in his death because because he took our place because he was perfectly righteous because only he could bear the wrath of god But his death isn't just powerful to save. There's something else here. His death is power to gather. His death means there's power to gather. Did you see that? Through his death, he would gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In a sense, they're not yet the children of God, in one sense. But in another sense, he knows those who are his. Jesus said in John 10, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, the fold of Israel. They're of other nations, and I will bring them in. They will hear my voice, and they will follow me. You see, his death isn't just an example. It's not just a sign, and it's not just payment, although that's much more a part of what his death is than... Those others I mentioned. But he died in order to gather. His death secured the gathering of a multitude. He gathers us to himself. Thankful for the power to save and the power to gather. Now we know how the rest of the story goes. In verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. We know that he rose from the de- from that death on the third day. We know that his death means victory. Let's note some takeaways. Maybe the first being, do you, do you believe this? Which one do you identify with in the story here? Caiaphas, these religious leaders, do you find yourself so transfixed on something besides Jesus that when he would be staring at you in the face, you wouldn't see him. You see, in this sense, Caiaphas was right. Either we die and bear our sins, or we receive his death in our place, and we go free, free back to him. Believe is one takeaway. Another is to see God's amazing, intricate orchestration of events in this story and through the whole story of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. We call it sovereignty, or we call it providence. It's his plan that he's putting together, in it's mysterious. We don't know all of it. We, we know that the major headlines of what's to come. There's so much we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, James tells us, James chapter 4. So we should be careful, even in our planning, we should say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or I'll do that. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we can see in this story, whatever it brings, whatever his plan brings tomorrow, we can trust it. He's good. He is good and sure, even in the midst of evil plotting. He is good and he is sure even when Caiaphas is saying, Let's just take out this one guy. I mean, it's just one guy. Isn't the nation more important? So God is good and sure even in the midst of your circumstances, just like he is here. If he is so sovereign so as to get Caiaphas to, of his own, you could say, free will, accidentally prophesy of exactly what's going to happen and to accidentally preach great theology of substitution. Jesus dying for the people. Then surely he's in charge of what's going on. Surely he's in charge of what people have said. Surely he's in charge of his provision in your life, his care over you. Not one hair falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Keep preaching sovereignty to yourself. Also, see the centrality of Jesus and the cross in God's plan. This is the center of his plan. This is, this is the thing that everything before was pointing to, and, and we know that it's already come to pass. It's already done. He did die, He was raised, and now He sits at the right hand of the throne of God and He intercedes for us. His Spirit has come. Oh, we still wait, but there's so much that we don't anymore wait on as his people, like others in the past did. We thank God for the centrality of Jesus and the cross and his plan. And we thank him that it already came to pass. We can look back and know that when he said it is finished, boy, it's so symbolic of so many things that got finished when he died for us. Thank him for the scope of his redemption, that it's not just one nation, that it's reached you, that it's come to this nation, that it's come to your family. It's not because we're deserving of it. Ponder the nature of the cross, the salvation that we have, that it's substitution. Because because our hope rests in the fact that one guy died, then if he died, we can rest assured that in faith it's settled and he's good. will continue to do us good. The hope is outside of us. And we rest in the surety of the salvation that we have of him dying in our place. And notice also the surety of his plan to keep gathering from those scattered abroad. He will keep gathering. He'll keep gathering until one day there's a multitude in heaven which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. In the meantime, he calls us to join him in that. Join him in that mission of gathering those who are scattered abroad and who will one day come in.